Welcome back, Horror Hounds, to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. I'm Mike Ghostman Pickle. And I'm James Rivera. So, this is our first virtual podcast, Ghostman and Rivera in the Age of the Coronavirus. Reporting to you from quarantine. Yeah, so Mike and I are actually at separate houses. This is the first time we've ever done a podcast like this, so it's a little bit different. Um, Mike has some news stories for you, and I have some updates for you. So before we get to Mike is going to have um, give you some news stories and some updates. But before that, I wanted to talk about some of the films that had been released. Remember earlier in the year, Mike, we did a podcast uh, announcing all the stuff, uh, all the horror movies coming out 2020 and the release dates? Oh, yeah. Just cancel that podcast. Everyone. Yeah, that, that <laughs> podcast is completely irrelevant now since everything has been switched out since movie theaters are closed. And uh, before we get started, I don't know if you heard the news that AMC might not even be able to open back up after this. Ooh. Like, it's bad. And AMC is the biggest theater chain in the country. So I just want to tell everybody out there, as soon as this is over... If you want to preserve the theatrical experience, please go out and support. And I'm pretty sure people will start flooding movie theaters as soon as this is over because people are going to be excited to get back into the world. But support it as soon as it gets back because this is going, the, the, the movie industry is going to take a hit because of this. Yeah, because the, the movie theaters don't make a whole lot of money off the movies themselves. Mm-hmm. They make the money off the crowd that comes and pays for all the concessions and stuff. So, so they're completely dead in the water. Yep, they are. So um, keep in mind, especially with uh, independent movie theaters and more local ones, try to support them as soon as it opens up. Uh, hopefully this will be done in a few months. So yeah. without further ado, I'm going to get started with a list of movies that have been rescheduled. Now, A Quiet Place 2, which is probably the highest profile one, it was supposed to be re- released March 20th of last month. It has been pushed back to Labor Day, September 4th of this year. So we'll be seeing that later this year, hopefully. Um, this is a big one to be pushing back. Oh, the yeah. Ne- the next one is The New Mutants. This movie is fucking cursed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I feel bad. They've been, they've been postponing this for years and they finally like on off reshoots rescheduled finally where it's going to be released this month so they have to reschedule and as of now they don't have a release date it's unconfirmed a lot of these movies they're holding off to see when it's going to be possible for them to show could it it be that we're all victims of the new mutants curse (laughs) yeah i think so i think we are (laughs) Here's the next one is another superhero horror movie, Morbius, the Jared Leto vampire movie was supposed to release July 31st, 2020. We now are seeing that it's going to be pushed to March 19th, 2021 next year. So you're going to have to wait about a year for that. Damn. Uh, It's crazy, huh? Yeah. Antlers, which looked pretty I I think uh, Quiet Place 2, I think they're being optimistic, aren't they? I think they are, but I mean... You got to be optimistic. Otherwise, what are you going to look forward to? <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Take it an increment at a time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Antlers, which actually another horror film that looked pretty cool, was supposed to oh, be yeah. April 17th. It's been rescheduled to an unconfirmed release date. Mm. Mm. Run, which is another one, is going to be released May 8th. Now it's being rescheduled to an unconfirmed release date. Fear Street, the R.L. Stein, uh, the the adaption of the, uh, have you you read Fear Street before, Michael? Right? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, well they're making an adaption of that, which is R.L. Stein's more like adult line. I guess it's for young adults. Yeah. It's supposed to be released on June fifth, twenty twenty. We don't know when it's gonna be released now. Okay. Here's a big one that I'm disappointed. Saint Maud originally scheduled for April tenth, twenty twenty on Easter. Religious horror film was a perfect they had like the A24 had a perfect release date for this one as far as marketing goes. And now we don't know when it's going to be released. That's one I was really looking forward to. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like they have enough faith in it where they really want it to play on big screen. They don't want to screen it uh, streaming. Uh, A24, I mean, with the, with a few exceptions, they don't really, I mean, they've done a couple, but they, they, really try to stick with theatrical releases unless they can't figure out how to market a movie. Yeah. Once Sweetheart Run was supposed to be May 8th, 2020. Now it has been rescheduled to an unconfirmed date. A lot of these are unconfirmed. The next one is confirmed. Ghostbusters Afterlife. We were going to get that July 10th of this year. Now we are getting it March 5th, 2021. Okay. So this keeps getting put... Uh, a lot of people were really excited for this movie. Now they're going to have to wait about a year when originally they're going to made a, wait, a few, wait a few months. But something like Ghostbusters, with the type of hype that it has and the marketing and the brand and the budget, there's no way they weren't going to hold off until, <laughs> until movie theaters opened up. They were never so we're, we're, not we're not going to have a summer blockbuster season then. It's going to be Pretty weird. Much. And this is me just going through horror movies. If you go through the release schedule, the summer blockbuster season is canceled. Yeah, they don't even have anything rescheduled or anything, huh? Uh, yeah, because they're trying to figure out what, what they're going to do with it. And for summer blockbusters, those movies are usually really high budgeted. So yeah. studios don't spend that much money just to release it onto a streaming website. Yeah, because... Even when the lockdown is lifted, there's not going to be a whole lot of gathering of a lot of people in one place for a while, you know? People are still going to be a little bit paranoid. Yeah. Here's another one I was looking forward to. Spiral from the Book of Saw, the Chris Rock yes. Saw movie. May 15th, 2020 has been rescheduled to an unconfirmed release date. And not many are, are picking a date, huh? Mm-mm. Here's one that I know that this is going to make you sad, Michael. Malignant. It was originally going to be, re be released August 14th, 2020. And it has been rescheduled to an unconfirmed release date. Warner Brothers is actually pushing Wonder Woman 1984 to go in this release date. And uh, I'm having Warner, uh, Warner Brothers actually uh, is a studio for Malignant and Wonder Woman. So I guess because Wonder Woman is such a big budget thing, they're trying to keep it to the summer. That's being optimistic. I don't even know if Wonder Woman's going to make it to theaters by August 14th, 2020. I hope it does. And Malignant will have to be scheduled to another date. I don't know when they're going to figure that out. But we'll see. Um, here's a couple that look like they are still on for now. The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, September 11th, 2020 looks like barring the <laughs> the possibility that this goes further i think we should uh it looks like it'll be released september 11th 2020 what a yeah i'm, um, I'm more i'm more curious about that one than excited 
Candyman, scheduled for June 12th, 2020. They have not pulled it off the schedule yet. Man, that's, that's one I was particularly excited for ever since I saw the trailer for it. That's one yeah. that I really wanted to see. Um, and, of course, Halloween Kills, October 16th, 2020, is still on because that's much, much later in the year, and I'm hoping, they're guessing they're hoping that's going to be fine. So as yeah. you can see, all the horror movies that we were talking about have all been pushed back, so that podcast from earlier no longer counts. Disregard that one. <laughs> yes. So yeah, all those are going to be pushed back with the few possibilities that the last ones I mentioned are still going to run on time. Yeah. Crazy times we're living in. I know. Well, uh, with news, there, there hasn't been much news to speak of at all. That's why I'm doing it by myself today. But there's a few things that have been happening over the past few weeks since we've um, been off with our little hi- hiatus on the podcast. But uh, I just wanted to bring up bring up the elephant in the room real quick <laughs> about those uh, videos that we did, the video messages, mm-hmm. and we posted it as our last podcast, like a message to our fans. Mm-hmm. Man, you're you're eloquent. You're t- you're talking about this great cinema, well spoken. And here's my dumbass in there talking about eating ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried to talk a little bit about giving some advice. <laughs> And you, you see who's the better speaker out of the two in that video, man. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I think it came out fine. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. <laughs> Just uh, on the last podcast that we released a couple days ago, um, it's not really a podcast. It was just a couple of messages that we stitched together to hold you over just to give the audience an idea of where we're at during the situation. Yeah. So on, on the podcast, we mention, uh, we both mentioned the fact that this is a video. If you don't see a video, I mean, obviously because it's sound, it was not designed as a podcast. So if you're wondering why there's music in the background and a couple of things that you normally don't hear, that's the reason why. It was more, it's a video message that we put onto our page and then converted into a podcast. Yeah. But this is our real one. And uh, also, uh, stay tuned later in the podcast, after I finish the news, we're going to play an interview that we did yesterday with Chloe Carroll mm-hmm. from uh, fearcrypt.com. We did a, 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 a virtual interview with her yesterday, so that'll be, that'll be posted right after the news, and then after the interview, we'll launch into our uh, movie discussion of all the movies we've been watching. Perfect. But uh, first, I'll get through some news. Horror show news. Uh, first of all, the saddest news by far is that Stuart Gordon died on March 24th at age 72, the great horror director. Uh, Mark Duplass and Patrick Bryce are struggling with a concept for Creep 3. Uh, the Walking Dead season 10 finale will not air as planned on April 12th. Why? And I know. <laughs> if, and, uh, okay. <laughs> More on Adam that. Adam Green. Adam Green is doing something on his YouTube, YouTube page called Coronapocalypse, where he hosts uh, his own movies and, and talks about them, interacts with fans, and he has special guests and stuff. And then uh, Horror Show's on Suzy Block is in a new music video. Mm-hmm. So um, starting with uh, Stuart Gordon, uh, as I mentioned, he died on March 24th at age 72. He, it was a multiple organ failure. Um, he did, this, this man was a beast. How old is he? a horror director. He did Reanimator in 85. 
From Beyond in 86, Dolls in 87, The Pit and the Pendulum in 91, Fortress in 92, Castle Freak in 95, Dagon in 2001, and the Masters, Masters of Horror Dreams of, in the Witch House in 2005. This man was a master. He was a true master of horror. I was very sad to hear this. You know, it's funny enough, I barely started binging all of his stuff last year. Mm. So I was able to familiarize myself with his filmography before he passed away because it was a, a big blind spot. Almost all his movies are fun, but they have layers mm-hmm. and depth to them, you know? And of course, Reanimator. Yeah, I love the ones he did with uh, um, uh, Barbara Crampton. Mm-hmm. Audio glitch. Okay, so what I was saying was I love all his movies with Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. <laughs> we got cut off. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. We're still getting used to this. Yeah, uh, Reanimator is one of the all-time classic horror movies. One of the best horror films of the 80s. One of the best splatter movies. And yeah. easily one of the funniest horror movies I've ever seen. And it's funny and it's kind of campy in a way that doesn't sacrifice how fucking bizarre and off the wall the horror elements of it are. Yeah. And that Reanimator was even made into a really good musical. I, I seen a, they staged a scene of it at Weekend of Horrors one year as a convention. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool. And I'm not surprised that it played so well as a play and as a musical because I didn't know until after he died that Stuart Gordon was famous for like experimental theater. I didn't even know that either. I know. He was like uh, almost as famous as he was a filmmaker. He was famous among the uh, uh, theater circles. Yeah. Man left behind quite a legacy. Yeah, he did. And sure has inspired me, that's for sure. Rest in peace to the great legendary Stuart Gordon. Yep. I only recently seen Castle Freak. I wish I hadn't waited so long. That mm-hmm. movie is so good. Our next story is pretty sad, too, but not quite as sad as Stuart Gordon dying. Uh, as as uh, you may know, if you watch the podcast or listen to the podcast that James and I both love, Creep and Creep 2. Well, they are developing Creep 3, but Mark Duplass and Patrick Bryce are struggling with the concept. Uh, so Mark Duplass told IndieWire, we had almost, we had to almost kill ourselves to make Creep 2 as good as it was. I appreciate how many people liked it, but I do feel like it wasn't as good as it could have been. What? If I'm being perfectly honest. He went on to say, if we're going to make a third one, it better be super inspired. We're trying and we're putting effort into it. We are, we are not good enough yet to make it worthwhile. So we are struggling. That's really it. We've written it twice, and neither of those stories are good enough. The most shocking part of that is that he doesn't think Creek 2 was that good. I know, but you know how it is as a filmmaker. When you're doing production, like uh, the short films I've done and the feature film and the short films you've done, I'm sure every time you look back on something, there's something that you're not completely satisfied with or you feel that things could have been done better. But what what they forget is a lot of the times those things that uh they see wrong were that whether or not these things may or may uh, they may or may not be true but most of the time the audience doesn't know these are things that are only relevant to the creator and to the director and to the writer where they look where you look back and go damn if i would have did this now i would have fixed this or i would have done x y and z instead of doing yeah. it so while we love creep 2 
he needs to remember um he is his idea of it not being good enough is based on things that the audience will never understand it'll be based exactly, on exactly yeah because we weren't in on the process we can only judge the finished product and the finished product to me was pretty fucking awesome and if i'm not i'm mistaken uh i'm in a we're in a lot of those horror groups and social media online and those are a picky group of fuckers who don't like anything creep yeah. and creep 2 were both pretty well received i don't see too many complaints about it so i hope that he keeps that in mind that fans loved it we really liked it and it, it doesn't even it doesn't even get as it doesn't even get as much hate as as most found footage films do no it doesn't it doesn't and that's something that's pretty rare for a movie for found footage films to get received that much lack of a backlash for it to have yeah so, um, creep Two, maybe the things that he sees are things that only he's going to notice because uh they're the filmmakers but i hope somehow they get they get creep three done i really love the first two two of my favorite found footage films in fact creep the uh, the first creep is probably and as you know if you listen to the podcast that's one of my top 10 horror movies of the last decade i really loved it yeah. so well I've, I've noticed that a lot of directors are like that they're a stickler for their own content like adam green and joe lynch talk about it all the time adam green it pains him to go back and watch his movies except for frozen he's really he's really proud of frozen but joe lynch is even worse he's really down on himself and down on his own movies because they they can't look at it without seeing all the little mistakes they made and all the little shortcomings. But with, with me, I'm not a director like that. I can still be proud of the stuff I've made even early on, even some of the embarrassing stuff, because I did the best I could at the time. So I, I don't look back like that. I just look forward. Mm -hmm. But I can understand how can be, he can be really picky, because you can tell with Creep 1 and 2 that they're really picky about the story and making it 100% authentic and, and grounded. Mm -hmm. well hopefully they get it back on track yeah and of course even still i mean they have plenty of time to take advantage of it right now i mean they're gonna have to refashion the script i'm sure with everything going on they're not going to be shooting that movie anytime soon yeah so well if, if they're if they're agonizing over it enough to admit in the press that they're struggling with it you know it's going to turn out badass yeah and if they wrote two versions of it and they're not satisfied with it, they're not going to be happy until that's going to be fucking awesome. Yep. <clears throat> All right. Our, um, the next story is the Walking Dead story. This is uh, mostly this coming from me because it's fucking sense to me. Yeah, James has never been a, a Walking Dead fan. So I'm not a Walking Dead fan. <laughs> but be that's besides the point. You're saying it's being delayed? Well, uh, they just aired... Uh, episode 13 so there's 16 episodes in the season mm -hmm. they're still gonna air uh episode 14 and 15 in their scheduled days but they cannot air the finale because it's not done yet they, they finished filming it but the lockdown came around when before they finished the post-production so there's nobody in their post-production house to finish it so they're gonna have to release it later as a single episode so uh Okay. AMC, AMC said in a statement, current events, which is coronavirus, have unfortunately made it impossible to complete post-production of The Walking Dead Season 10 finale. So the current season will end with its 15th episode on Sunday, April 5th. The planned finale will, will appear as a special episode later in the year. 
I find this strange because, I mean, I don't know what the exact situation is, but um, if you're transferring footage and stuff like that, most of post-production could be done separately. It's not a job. It's not like the filmmaking process where it requires a big group of people. Somebody yeah. can color correct footage on their own. Somebody could edit it from their computer. So that strikes me as a strange complaint. I was just, for a second, I thought they were just canceling it because of the coronavirus. Oh, no. <laughs> I was going to say, people want their at-home content right now. Why would you fucking cancel something? Well, what it could be, like, judging from, like, like for instance, my wife works for AT&T, and mm -hmm. she's considered an, an essential worker for some reason because she answers phones for AT&T and takes care of people's cell phone needs. Mm -hmm. So they had her come home today. So she's working from home, but they really had to agonize over that because they were afraid that people would get home and start hacking into people's accounts and all that. So they're, maybe they're afraid of, of a higher chance of piracy if they let it go out into people's homes and it could be hacked easier, maybe. That's possible. Piracy for like early footage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't put it past anybody. <laughs> So, so obviously it's a huge undertake. Like, like I know a couple of people who work for production houses mm -hmm. and they worked up until they, till the last possible minute where they had to go home. But once they went home, they were, they were done. They did no more work for them. So everything's going pretty nuts right now. But uh, while I'm on the subject of walking dead, I might as well continue my um, analysis of this season, which uh, as you know, from listening to the podcast, it went completely off the rails last season for me. Or, or at the, the first half of the season before the hiatus. And I was pretty much done with it. It almost, it went from me loving every episode to like laboring to get through it. And then when I, when I got back into it, it, it was hard for me to stay, stay awake in some of the episodes. That's saying something so, for you because you've been loyal to that show even when most of the audience for it has been disappearing very rapidly. Yeah. So, so here where we're at, here where we're at with this season, we're on season thirteen. Mm -hmm. We've had three really good episodes. Three episode three was by far the best episode of the season. Mm -hmm. Some of their best characters shined in that episode. There was a lot going on. Really well made. Really well structured. And then episode ten came up, and episode ten was really strong. And so was episode twelve, but not as strong as episode three. Now thirteen comes along. And it starts to completely go off the rails because everything that they got ex got us excited about in episode 12, they shift their focus to just Michonne. And Michonne's on her little quest and it gets really annoying because she's, it's out of character for her to be tr so trusting to someone. And she keeps trusting this stranger and he keeps screwing her over and keeps playing games with her and she keeps falling for it. So it's really annoying. But by the end of the episode, it kind of comes full circle and becomes really good. And it leads, ultimately leads to a big reveal and then Michonne's exit from the show. So uh, I'm not really understanding Michonne's exit from the show. I mean, it was a cool scene. I didn't realize she was exiting the show until they said afterwards on The Talking Dead. But uh, she kind of went off with another faction of people that were going off in another direction because she's going to find Rick. So I guess she's going to be a part of Rick's walking dead movie when it comes out so she left the show so that's where walking dead is right now <laughs> sounds pretty haphazard to me like it's <laughs> pretty much all over the place yeah i don't oh. still some good stuff going on and hanging in there but man they're making it hard for me 
Our next story is uh, Adam Green doing Corona Apocalypse. As I mentioned, it's on Aeroscope's uh, YouTube page. Mm -hmm. uh, today, today is uh, Friday. He's doing uh, YouTube uh, at YouTube.com/Aeroscope. He's doing his movie Frozen, so he's gonna have some special guests. So I'm not sure what he has coming up after that, but uh, check out his Instagram. I believe it's uh, Adam underscore FN underscore Green on Instagram. So check him out. And then last but not least is Horror Show's own Susie Block is in a new music video. Yes. It's, a, it's a song called Lost on You by the band Robson. Mm -hmm. Not only is it an excellent video, it's a badass song. I cannot stop listening to this song and I can't stop watching this video because it fits so perfectly with it. And it's a great story that goes behind it too. Because uh, she knew a guy from this band Robson, right? Mm -hmm. So he wanted to make a video for this this song lost on you and he wanted to use old uh film footage mm -hmm. so he told Susie about his plan to use old film footage so she was like oh i got some old film footage of my friend you mean my friend walking around the streets with uh super 8 cameras film cameras and uh so i'll just take that and i'll edit it together for him so he'll see what old film footage looks like with his video he liked it so much he kept he kept the video that she edited together so she stars in it, uh, filmed some of it, and edited it herself. So our very own Susie Block, a uh, star of a music video. And just uh, so you know, Susie Block has been on a couple of our shorts before. Um, we both have directed her. I directed her in a short that I did called Misogynistic Losers uh, from season two, where I had her play a psycho. You had her in, um, what was it? You had her in... I, I don't believe in Bloody Carry. I don't believe in bloody care. You had her on something else too. We've worked with her so many times. Yeah, <laughs> it was something else too. I, I know we've had her on the show a few times and we've had her on the podcast too. If you've listened, go back, listen to episodes. We've had her on the podcast. Uh, Stephen King is actually a fan of her, likes her, yeah. follows her. So that's always pretty cool. I'm really Thank proud you. of her. I did get a chance to see the video. I thought it was really cool. I thought it fit the song really well. I like the song. I like the music. And I'm happy because this is basically her music video. Basically, she yeah. directed it. I mean, she stars, like you said. She acts and she edited before. And to be honest, I didn't even know she edited before. <laughs> yeah. So that actually caught me by surprise. And it's really well edited. Like the, the shots that she chooses and then the ones that she chooses to repeat and the way the video flows, it just fits the song so well. And it just, it just takes you into a world that, that you can, that it feels like that song inhabits and it feels natural. Yeah, it, it came out perfect. And really quick, a, a correction. I directed her in season one, not season two. Oh, I, yeah. I, I was saying season two. Season one, I apologize. But the short I did with her is probably the short that I'm most proud of that yeah. I've directed, that I've written and directed. And largely it's because of how well she did because of her performance and her dedication and yeah. the center of it. So I don't think it would have came out half as good if we did not have her on it. And, and am I right that she takes the words that you write and just makes them her own and yeah. makes, them, makes them sound better than they did when they were on the page? <laughs> yeah. Not only that, she actually got what I was going for when I was directing it. When there, I, there were less things I had to communicate with her because yeah. she already kind of had a handle, in on, handle on it herself. So I'm really proud of this. I'm really proud of her. And I'm glad that she's, uh, that she, uh, I'm proud of her 
creative endeavor because to edit together a music video, which I've done before, is pretty challenging. Yeah, and, and when, you, when you see this video, you'll see how much she just pops off the screen. She's so, such a beautiful actress. Mm -hmm. And then her, her presence, there's just something about her presence that you can't quite put your finger on. It's beside just her beauty. Yes. And then her, just her natural acting abilities. And the video is just really good. I love the song. I love the way she put it together. It's, it's just really good. Everybody check it out. It's Lost on You by the band Robson, R-O-B-S-O-N. Yes. Check it out on YouTube. So is that it for the news? And that's it. We are pretty dry with news this week. All right. But we got lots of movies to discuss, though. But, but we're going to play the interview first, right? Yeah. So we got a special treat for our audience right now. This is a 15 or 20 minute interview that we conducted with Chloe Carroll. She's the owner of the for Fear Crypt. Check it out. Horror show exclusive. Okay, we are now <clears throat> on Zoom with Chloe Carroll from Fear Crypt. Hello. Hi. How you doing today, Chloe? Good. Everything's good. Sat in quarantine, but great otherwise. <laughs> oh, you're in actor producer uh yes and uh you started fear crypt yourself yeah i well yes i did um a short film with my husband and um it was the first horror film we'd done together and i wanted to have a brand um for that film and for any future horror films that i did so i created fear crypt um and then since then i've been doing all my short films under that brand okay but your first one wasn't under that brand it was, yes. Um, oh, it was so, so you just, you formed it to release the short, basically. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. So what, what made it grow into what it is now, which is taking submissions from other filmmakers, right? And doing your own as well? Yeah, so I, um, I just kept making short films and because I had this brand that I made for myself, um, I just wanted to keep um, acquiring short films more and more. I haven't really took anyone else's yet. That's something I'd be open to in the future, but because my um, subscribers list isn't big enough yet where it would be appetizing for people to put their own short films on um, the Fair Crypt website. But eventually, hopefully, if I can make more films and get more fans, then I would love to start putting other people's stuff on there too. I know that um, we gave the rights to um, two of our shorts to a YouTube channel called Kings of Horror. And mm -hmm. uh, they like do it similar, but they do feature films on there and everything too, which is really cool. Um, and it just got us a bit more publicity to go on a different site. So I'm hoping that when we're big enough, then we can do that for other people too. Uh, but right now it's, it's super small. <laughs> Okay, but, but you're sending the invitation out there, right? And uh, you want to get that going? Yeah, it's out there if anyone wants to. Um, I know we're not big enough yet, but uh, hopefully one day. What made you decide to get into the horror genre specifically? So I have just always loved horror. I'm um, an adrenaline junkie myself. So anything that gets my adrenaline going, um, and especially with horror films, you're always sat there and it's an experience when you watch a film. You're always like scared for the actors in the, the film or the characters um so i think that watching horror is one of the best genres to watch with people because it's such an experience as to watching like a drama film it's still an experience but you're not sat there like holding hands with your partner like oh my god what's gonna happen um like like you do in a horror film compared to like other genres so 
that's what I love about horror. So you consider yourself a horror filmmaker then? Yes, most of my films are horror. So yeah, I did just do a feature film, which was like um, a thriller mix, because um, my <laughs> husband's more into like the drama films. Uh, okay. But mainly all my shots are horror. What is your feature film about? Um, my feature film is about a struggling young couple. And I didn't direct this, by the way. Um, this okay. was directed by Philip, um, and who's Philip G. Carroll Jr. That's my husband. Um, that's how you'll find that film. Um, he, so it's about a struggling um, young couple, and they find an ad for $50,000 where if they just stay in a remote house in the middle of nowhere and are observed while they're in the honeymoon phase, uh, they'll get paid. And that's it. It's, it's like a Craigslist type ad and they're like, oh yeah, let's do it. What could go wrong? And then they slowly start to find out that it is not what they thought it was and there's more sinister forces going on. <laughs> um, it, it still has horror elements to it then. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that sounds really cool. So what would you say is your favorite part of making films? Would you rather be in front of the camera or behind the camera? Um, I prefer to act. That's my favorite thing in filmmaking. But I found uh, a love for producing recently in the last few years. And I love every creative medium of filmmaking. So I've started writing my own stuff. Um, and But I love producing also. Directing, I like to do too, but like... It's not really my forte. I have to really love something to want to do. <clears throat> Stress of directing. I feel like yeah. that's the most stressful thing to do. Well, if, um, if, if you're like me, you got into producing because it's a necessity because you really have to get into producing to, in order to release your stuff the way you want it, you know, it's, instead of being beholden to a studio or something. Yeah, that's definitely right. Um, I mean, producing is probably the second stre most stressful part of production. Um, but I think that you become a better filmmaker the more roles that you understand yeah. in the whole process. Um, so even from, you know, the development of a script right through to are we doing a festival run? Like, it's important to know that whole chain instead of just like, you know, originally I was just an actor and I was like, oh, so we, we filmed the film and then it magically yeah. appears to me eight months later. <laughs> and then yeah. instead now I know like the whole process and like what goes into it. So when I'm on yeah. other sides, I understand. For you, for you, what's the most challenging part of the filmmaking process? Getting the script right is really important because especially I... In my short films, I work, I normally collaborate with people. Um, mm -hmm. So getting a script that we all like is always tough because everyone has different tastes and opinions. And, you know, no matter what film you like, there'll be someone who loves it and there'll be someone who hates it. Yeah. So you have to come up with something that um, you think is going to be really good for one audience or like multiple audiences or whoever you're aiming the film at. Um, mm -hmm. And then after that is funding is always the number one yeah hardest part of filmmaking and has nothing to do <laughs> with actually making the film it's just like you need a budget um to do like a more quality film yeah uh, getting yeah getting the film made and making the film are two separate things that you find out once you start getting into the business and people don't know that there is a difference there is a big difference between the two yeah <laughs> yeah uh, I think that's every indie filmmaker is probably like sat there watching this like, yeah, <laughs> we understand. Yeah. 
What what budget range do you usually work in, if you don't mind me asking? So um, with the shorts, they're anything from like 800 to two, two grand. Um, I did a one for a little bit more recently called Alicia, where um, I put in a little bit more money to make it um, so we could shoot longer uh, because I wanted to specifically do a festival run. Um, as you know, with short films, they, they unless you um, put them into an anthology, they don't make any money and yeah, all exactly. my films eventually just go to YouTube. I don't make any money from that. It's just awesome. <laughs> fun um uh, <laughs> but, so if i wanted so this time i wanted to do um a festival run with our most recent film so i was like you know let's put a bit more into this let's put a bit more like more time more a little bit more money um and i think we made a really solid project and most of my shorts are like three minutes long because i shoot for one day and do the like three pages a day rule so that the film oh. comes out you know of a good quality and we're not just like shooting loads of footage that doesn't look great um but this one i wanted is it's a 10 minute film so we shot for two days um, well we just we just did a feature film it's, it's actually my first feature film oh cool congrats 21 pages in a day the the budget was so small <laughs> oh man that just makes me stressed just to hear <laughs> it was stressful. yes it was <laughs> Wait, Five you, and a half days for a feature film. That's what we. That's a, That's how it was shot, on a very low budget. So a lot of constraints, a lot of pressure, but the process is fun even when it's challenging. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a love hate relationship. I always talk to my husband about this. He's like, I hate filmmaking and I love it and I can't not do it. But I hate. <laughs> it's so stressful. And it, yeah. It's just constant, especially on a feature film, but that seems very stressful. Did, is it, um, what's your horror film about? Is it like found footage or like? No, it, it, no it's called uh, Pay Up. And okay. it's, about a, it's about a guy who gets caught between a drug dealer and a dangerous cult. Okay. And uh, a gory and invasive procedure is, is his only way out of it. So it's got special effects and everything. <laughs> okay. Oh man, special effects too. We, we did a shot in the <clears throat> I shot film Nefarious and the it's just like literally a close-up of a picture frame and blood splatters on it. Uh -huh. And it ended up taking us like three hours because the blood wouldn't squirt properly yeah. and it right and and the shot is like okay. <laughs> like you, <laughs> you like wondered how long that took, like you'd be like, What were you guys doing? Like <laughs> just anything with blood is unpredictable too. Oh yeah. Um, and in the blood some like really gory stuff, like um like we had like a head like bounced off the wall and um we had one actor literally just just like threw blood on it. And that's like a <laughs> one take thing. So we had like three cameras running. Um, we were lucky because we were shooting on um, the Black Magic. Oh, uh, DP is going to kill me for not getting this right. Um, <laughs> it was the Black Magic camera, and we had a 2K version, a 4K version, and a 6K version, all oh. like <laughs> this girl, so we could throw the blood on and make sure we got the right shot. Then um, <laughs> we we did it, and then we were like, check all the cameras, like check if we got like one usable shot of this. Man, no wonder your stuff looks so good. Oh, thank you. I well, I have, I have such a good team, um, and we managed to do like uh, decent stuff with a low budget. So I think it's down to the whole team's talent. Yeah, tell us about your team. Do you uh, contract teams to put when you put together a short film, or do you have the same team that you work with on every film? So 
I pretty much work with the same team, but uh, we do a mixture of like collaborators. Um, so normally uh, the, the main producers on my projects are big players in the film too. So um, I work with Wesley Malott a lot and he uh, has his own YouTube channel called Thinking Art Entertainment and he's amazing and he's a cinematographer and he directs a lot of my stuff. Um, so th all the big players are collaborating on their own time and all own the film alongside me and it all goes on their YouTubes too. Nice. Uh, and then like the, the roles that we don't have will just hire. Uh, but it keeps the budget low and we all get like content because uh, all the producers I work with normally have their own YouTube channels and they're like, damn, we just don't have any money to produce the content. And yeah, it kind of is like uh, saturating the market with like the same film on mul multiple sites, but we all have separate fan bases. Uh, oh, okay. Mine, which is almost non-existent as of right now, but eventually um, he has the most, but uh, we're hoping that we can all build with the content. Um, and then we do like normally a festival run or a short festival run with some of the ones we really like um, first before it goes on. So that helps us get a little bit of... Um, Buzz going? Yeah, yeah. Out of all the short films that you shot, which one are you most proud of personally? Uh, Alicia, which is it's not online yet. We just we just shot it in um, February, January or February. This quarantine has just got all my dates mixed up, and I don't know where I am right now. <laughs> I, I think it was we shot in February. Yes, we did. And so we did a really quick turnaround. We got it edited, got all the posts done um, really quick. And we just submitted to festivals last week. Man, I'm hoping there is still a film festival circuit with this whole yeah. uh, virus thing, because that was definitely a risk. Um, but we, a lot of them are going online and stuff. Um, and if they don't, like, that's the risk we took. But yeah, that's what we're doing. We're we're entering our feature in all the festivals. We rented, entered it in five big ones so far. And people are telling me, what are you doing? It's a pandemic right now. We don't know what's going to happen with these festivals. I'm like, well, they'll screen eventually. <laughs> yeah. Did you um, submit via Film Freeway? Yeah, I'm going through there. So did you, do you have a gold membership? No, I don't. I was looking into that. I was wondering if it'd be worth it to get that. We, I did um, only because, um, depending on how big of, um, how much money you're putting into your festival run too, it ends up being cheaper if a lot of them are on gold anyway with the discounts, but they also give free submission protection, which means if that festival cancels, you get your money back. So it's, it's like a good insurance for right okay. now. I would get gold. That's not a bad idea. Home. And it's like a small monthly charge, right? It's a ten ninety nine a month. Um, if you get it, you also get so many discounts on the, I sound like a, I'm being paid to advertise film freeway gold. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm sure anybody out here trying to make films, this is useful information on how yeah. to budget the festival <laughs> run. Yeah. And if you make, if you're putting a lot of money into it, I normally make like a, I mean, I am so OCD with my, um, anything to do with my film production. So I have a whole festival sheet with like the dates and how much they cost and how much I save if I do gold. And normally because it's so cheap, you end up making, like you saving more money than you would spend not going with gold and you can always cancel before the month ends. So it's like a one-off payment. 
which is normally when you submit anyway, like you submit everything within, mm -hmm. you've made your list in a few days and then you could just cancel your subscription and it's totally worth it. I do it. Oh, cool. I think, so I think um, even though there's a pandemic going right now and we don't know where we're going to be as far as festivals, I think it's important as artists always to take risks and send it anyway. Just because if you're trying to get your content out there, you don't want to have to wait to submit it next year. And then it takes two years to get something out that you just shot last month. So anybody who's... I would think that anybody who's hesitant on entering the festival run shouldn't hesitate for that reason. And knowing about the gold membership will probably make it more encouraging too. Yeah, because it, it's totally worth it. And then if it doesn't work out, you get your money back. So uh, that's a risk I would take if you're out there debating. I I, um, I was so I was thinking about it because I was like, oh man, like I, I could lose a lot of money here. Um, if all these festivals canceled and I saw the gold, um, like terms, it's like submission protection. I was like, ah, well, it doesn't, it like, it doesn't matter because I get it back if they cancel. Um, and if it's different with a feature film, it's tough for you guys because, um, like a short film, especially if the festival goes online, um, you're like, you know, if someone, um, uh, I'm just blanking on the word, um, steals the film like by filming it pirates, yeah yeah pirates the totally mm -hmm. blunt on that word then then the <laughs> short film it's like i you know it's it sucks and people do it like we, we had a short film um like four years ago that we put into the film festival circuit and like on online the next week someone had pirated our short film that was free on youtube to watch in 4k free oh. And they pirated it anyway on, and you could download the MP3 with like a 360 PP version. I was like, why? Like, um, but people like that's so scary um, with a yeah. feature film too, um, because like you can't really make. It's really hard to make money with shots. I know some people do, and I want to know their secrets. Um, but a feature yeah. film fun, so it's uh, I. I I presume for the big ones, they'll be more protected with it. But um, yeah, man, I feel your pain. <laughs> like, yeah. That's scary. I mean, uh, it's, it's hard to make money with feature films too, you know? And uh, people who pirate don't realize how much of a strain they put on indie filmmakers. They, yeah. they don't hurt the big studios that much, but they sure do hurt the indies. Yeah, they really do. Um, we, I, it's, it's funny. Um, doing a feature film is so different to doing the short films and especially when money's involved it's like it's just it's so stressful because it's like how can i make my money back and it's like the odds are never good yeah <laughs> especially so feel like you're unknown. It, it shouldn't be called pirating because it makes these people what they do sound cooler than it actually is people are gonna do it they they it sucks they don't realize because it's not like um it's not like stealing a car, like where like it's you. You think, oh, you know, they're making loads of money. I'll just, I'll just watch it right now. But it, it really yeah. does. It hurts the big studios too, um, just as much really as the indies. Just on that different level, like they lose the millions. So we just don't make anything. <laughs> like, yeah. So your your next project is uh, when is that going to be completed and available to watch? So it's I mean, it kind of depends on 
if it does well in the festival circuit or not. If it does well, then we'll keep it in there because most of them um, require it to be offline. But if it doesn't do great, it'll be online earlier. And um, if it does, we'll put it online right at the end of the festival run. So like fingers are crossed. Um, yeah. Hopefully we'll be in some of the same festivals. <laughs> yeah, that would be really cool. Um, and hopefully we can actually go to them in person. And if not, we'll watch them online via Zoom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, we're definitely going to watch out for all your work and uh, we look forward to seeing more of your short films and we hope to see you do more feature films. I have one question to go before you leave. Yeah. What is your favorite horror movie? So I know like so many people probably say this, but my favorite horror movie is Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, uh, just because oh, it's so i think it's so clever i think any i think the best horror movies target things that you have to do in everyday life and i think that it was so clever to come up with something that happens while you sleep because anyone who watches that movie is going to be like i have to go to sleep tonight and there's only so many days you can avoid it before you like die so like, i just think that you ta like you targeted something that everyone has to face um, yeah. I just think it, I think it's so good. And I, I love the villain. I love Freddy. Uh, I just think it's great. <laughs> yeah. Cool well, choice. Thank you so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Chloe Carroll. Look out for her. Uh, check out her site. It's, uh, what's the, what's your site? It's fearcrypt.com. And if you type in fearcrypt on all social media and YouTube, you should be able to find um, our films. And thank you so much for going to check it out. And thank you so much for having me today. Thank it you. Was a pleasure. And stay safe and enjoy the rest of your morning. Out there. <laughs> okay. Bye. Horror Show exclusive. All right. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Chloe Carroll. She is so cool. I can't wait to check out more of her stuff. She's beautiful, too. Our first uh, film we're going to discuss, we watched this. How long has it been since we watched The Hunt now? Um, about three weeks, but it feels like it's been longer than that because March, as you know, all the memes made fun of this, how that month seemed to drag on for like a year. I feel like March, in all of March, the events of a full year were compressed into that short amount of time. So we saw it right before all the lockdowns went crazy. I think it was like a couple of days before the lockdowns got yeah. set. We already knew it was headed in that direction, but we got to see a screening of The Hunt at the Egyptian Theater, the historic Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles. Yeah, Beyond at, Fest. At Beyond Fest, right before the theater was about to get shut down. So that was yeah. the last of it. So uh, this film, The Hunt, a couple of things I wanted to say about it. It's directed by Craig Zobel. I'm most familiar with him through uh, the show The Leftovers, which I'm a big fan of, which is created by Damon Lindelof, who is one of the writers for The Hunt. And uh, Nick Hughes, who is another writer for The Hunt, is also uh, was another writer for The Leftovers with Damon Lindelof. And they yeah. all worked together on Watchmen last year as well the the series and i was a really big fan of watchmen i thought it was a fucking superb show one of the best pieces of entertainment of last year and the leftovers uh which they all collaborated on is uh damon lindelof created one of my favorite favorite shows of all time another hbo series so i was 
really excited for this movie because of the creative team that was working on it is behind some of the best television of the past five or six years. Yeah, and we were one of the choice few to get to see it on the big screen. Yeah. And, uh, uh, we also got to see Nick Hughes and David, Damon Lindelof in person, and you even got to take a picture with David, David, yeah. uh, Damon Lindelof. Took a picture with Damon Lindelof. That kind of caught me off guard. I must not have been paying attention, but I didn't even realize he was going to be at the screening. And yeah. I was already a big fan of his writing. I nearly shit my pants when, <laughs> when I yeah. realized he was there. It was really yeah. cool. I shook his hand, which is kind of not the smartest thing I to do, especially when the <laughs> virus now thinking back. And I want to thank him for that because that was very polite and kind of you to shake my hand, me thoughtlessly reaching out to shake your hand during a pandemic. <laughs> but it was a it was a fun and insightful interview too. Um, David Damon Lindelof also did Lost and oh, uh, Prometheus. This is another one that's been plagued with problems. The hunt. Mm -hmm. uh, the release date was originally August 10th, but it was postponed because of two back-to-back -back mass shootings. Uh, the Trump comments would just push forward the plans that were already in place. But uh, the movie stars Betty Gilpin from the, the show Glow, the Netflix show Glow. She was really good in it. She was the, the shining beacon in that movie. And Hilary Swank was really good in it. And also Ike Barinholtz and Emma Roberts were both really good. It's about 12 strangers who wake up in a clearing and realize that they're being hunted. The film was delayed last year because of the uh, Trump comments. He tried to politicize this movie. And don't get me wrong, this already is a political movie. The yeah. very political movie, and it's not very subtle about it either. They make it very obvious that they're trying to get a point across. But I think it's a really funny satire. It's a lot different than I expected it to be. Because it's a horror movie about being hunted, but it's about liberal elites or limousine girls, yeah. as I would like to call them, hunting down Trump supporters. And what's funny, Trump is never mentioned once in the film, but unless you've been living under a rock or you're really stupid, it's pretty ob obvious who they're referring to throughout the yeah. movie and what they're referring to. But yeah. the good thing about this movie is that the movie does poke fun at the cliches of what it is to be a Trump supporter in America, what they believe. But the movie also skewers liberals and their political correctness. Shut up. How they're overly sensitive. Yeah. For my money, I actually think this is a little bit harder on the left than it is on the right. Yeah, they, 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 made, they made much more fun of the left, I think, because the, I, I don't know. I hate to say it, but Trump supporters are a little easier to make fun of. Shut your mouth or I'll rip your lips off. Once you see the movie, you see really how easy it is to skewer the liberal elites, too. <laughs> yeah. They're... It's not so hard as you think. What struck me most about it is that it was different because I, one of the things that I liked about The Leftovers and The Watchmen is the writing is very subtle and it's very layered and it lets its, uh, it lets everything seep in slowly you start to the the themes become crystallized as it goes on but since this is not a series this is a movie the writing on this is much more blunt and more in your face than on their television yeah. writing because i guess probably because they have to convey the information a lot faster within an hour and a half yeah. but even removing the political aspects of this film it's an exciting horror action thriller with a lot of yeah. really good suspense sequences and fantastic pieces of gore that are really inventive. I like that the, uh, it has one of the best 
uh, first 15 minutes of a movie in recent memory only because the movie toys with your expectations what you like when you go see a film when the protagonist is set up it becomes clear who yeah. you follow this movie tricks the audience about a handful of times just when you think you're settling in with the characters and the story the movie blows it up in your face like nope that's not what it is nope that's not what yeah. it is. It that's, takes a that's little why, while. That, that's why that first scene reminded me of scream because they set it up to, to where someone's going to be the star of it but but then they do that, like you said, they do that a few times. Yeah. So it, it, it always feels dangerous and unpredictable because of that. And every the early kills in the movie all caught me off guard, mostly because the movie sets itself up to feel like, okay, you're following this protagonist. And just when you're getting used to it, just when the audience has this chance to orient themselves to, the, to what's going on, it throws you for a loop and kind of resets it a few times yeah. and it kind of made me laugh because after a few times I'm like they're gonna do this again and when you do yeah. you expect it to be, be stupid because but it still manages to catch you off guard and when the main protagonist finally does settle in you're always on edge because the movie has put you in a state of mind where you expect whoever you're following to be annihilated at any moment Almost yeah, the, like Game of Thrones, what they do with their characters when you set them up, except in a much more compressed amount of time. So the main character, you're never, you're always in doubt as to her safety. And plus the main character, the one who ends up being a main character is in the background at the beginning. I didn't notice that. Yeah, she, she was in the background for a good, good half of the movie before she really started shining. And wow, did she, did she shine once she started? Betty Gilpin is a really good um, female action hero. She reminds me a little bit of uh, Ripley Sigourney Weaver, yeah, uh, but a little bit drier. I liked her performance because the way that she presents herself on screen, she has this really good thing of making herself seem like she's in over her head. And yeah. she is in over her head, don't get me wrong. But she's a lot more resourceful and she's a lot more intelligent than she, than she lets on. And I feel that the performance conveys the fact that the reason she's able to get through so many of these absurd situations that most people would have a hard time getting out of is she lets everybody underestimate her throughout the entire movie. They're thinking they're because she's a MAGA or a Trump supporter that she's a simple-minded yeah. person or that she's not smart. But she does this really good thing with her acting where she makes faces where she looks like she's in over her head, where to somebody else, to the other characters on screen, she looks like she's lost. But you could tell that the wheels are constantly spinning and she's trying to think yeah. of a way out of her situation. And I really liked her performance because of that, because it conveys that she as a person probably gets through life because everybody underestimates her and underestimates how intelligent and resourceful she is. And, and a lot of her best acting is just in her face without her saying a thing. You can see a lot of it. That, that, that includes the drama, the comedy, the intense scenes. Her dead you, can all, you can see it all in her face. The deadpan comedy. And I like the, the right before she does, like there's this one scene in a car, I'm not going to reveal what she does, but she does something pretty extreme when she's in a car with somebody else. And right before she does it, she looks around really confused and does something really smart and uh it catches you off guard because you think she's confused but the entire time she's plotting something else uh really great performance from betty gilpin uh 
probably the highlight of the movie. And without an actress like that uh, to anchor all of the carnage and the satire, it would not have worked as well. And I actually think it's a pretty unique uh, performance. It's not the type of uh, performance that you usually get from a horror action protagonist. Yeah. And uh, another thing I loved about it is how they found these Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that that they found these Trump supporters through talking shit online. They they were trolling online, and just something they said just really stuck it to these liberals. So they that's how they found them. So they found them through social media and kidnapped them, and then they they use that later on as you know how the mistaken identity thing comes into play. Yeah, and, and adds another layer to the movie that just makes it funnier and more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of layers like that in this movie that I really like. Snappy dialogue. It's a gory variety of highly effective kills, and I always love when the tables get turned on the uh, evil rich people. <laughs> and I, one other thing about I like about the end, you're never <clears throat> sure if the main character who is who she's supposed to be. Yeah, it leaves you a little bit in doubt as to whether she, what her true motives were, what her true motives and, were. And by the way, they show that final fight in the trailer and you're anticipating it the whole time. And it's still really exciting and really well made. All, all the action is really well filmed. It's, it's exciting. The, the hits look like they have impact. It's dangerous. It's, it's uh, it's a lot of parts flying about in this movie, especially with all the, the booby traps and the explosions. You get to yeah. see a good variety of viscera. And a, a lot of people being blown to pieces are hit mid sentence, like they're in the middle of their dialogue. It's like, <laughs> and if you have a sick sense of humor, you'll probably laugh at it. It's not going to horrify you. I found myself busting up in the crowd that I was in, thought it was pretty funny too. I could yeah. see that a lot of people are not going to like this movie because of the, the bluntness of it, and because it's probably not going to be what people are expecting it to be. But if you're up for some really exciting carnage, a really good action thriller, a horror action thriller, with a lot of gore that also doubles as an over-the-top and blunt political satire, you'll find it in the hunt. And even after that final fight, I thought the final fight was for sure that was the climax. Mm-hmm. But then they had, a, they had a climax right on at the end that, that couldn't have been better to, to tie the whole thing up. So good. <laughs> It was going into theaters for the audience just as the coronavirus was becoming a bigger thing. So right now you could rent it on video on demand for 19.99. Now, yeah. really quick, I hear a lot of people complaining about the prices to rent these movies. These prices are not really unfair when you think about it because they were made for theatrical exhibition. You get them for 24 hours and I realize that most movies are only four or five bucks to rent but these are theatrical motion pictures that are still supposed to be in theaters. Yeah. And they're still taking a hit with money because let's say you pay 19.99, who knows how many people are in the house are going to watch it and watch it more than once. Yep. You know what I mean? If you go to a theater, that would have been two tickets for two people right there. Five, six, seven, depending on how many people, I mean, you don't want to be gathering in too big of groups right now, but yeah. <laughs> depending on who's in your house, you could show it to four or five people. So yeah. in a way, the price is fair because you're getting a theatrical film brought to your home. So stop complaining about the $20 price tag. 
Yeah, and we got to see it on the big screen for free, but that's just the benefits that we have. One of the few benefits we have of living in California because it's hella expensive. It's almost impossible to survive here. But damn it, we can go see these big uh, movies on a big screen with the writers in attendance. <laughs> that's the first. <laughs> Did you just say hella? Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting too comfortable. <laughs> it's slang is starting to infect your brain <laughs> i know right? yeah so um if you want to check out the hunt it's worth a rental and another one that's worth the rental that's not that wouldn't be quite as expensive another one of the best movies of the year color out of space from directing richard stanley yep directing co-written by richard stanley who did hardware in 1990 and the theater bazaar in 2011 but was mostly blacklisted and hasn't been hasn't made any movies hardly since island of dr moreau where he was fired and blacklisted and it was co-written by scarlet amaris who uh co-wrote uh his part of uh, theater bazaar which is if you haven't seen that it's an anthology film that's really fucked up and really good really well made and uh this color out of space is based on a story by hp lovecraft and it's awesome probably the best <clears throat> lovecraft adaption since Stuart Gordon's reanimator. Yeah. So it, is Richard Stanley going to pick up the torch of uh, Stuart Gordon with making H.P. Uh, Lovecraft movies? I don't know. I don't think so. Only because, I mean, I think they're both, these are, uh, they're both excellent movies and they both capture the sense of cosmic horror that H.P. Lovecraft was always aiming for in his work. But this is a little bit more of a serious attempt to adapt H.P. Lovecraft, where I feel like Reanimator, while it is a faithful adaption, Stuart Gordon was injecting a lot of his own sensibilities, the wackiness, the sense of humor that is not present in the original H.P. Lovecraft stories. Yeah. This is an H.P. Lovecraft film that takes its source material very seriously. Yeah. And it's also based on one of H.P. Lovecraft's uh, best-known stories, Color Out of Space. And for a movie called Color Out of Space, uh, the colors are very important and very central to the movie and the way it works. And in the, the story that it's based on, the color is, <clears throat> it is not described because it's supposed to be a color that nobody has ever seen before. That's why it's the color out of space. So yeah. the colors in the movie are obviously, you're never gonna be able to create an original color, but the way that the brightness of it, the odd color correction and the, the way that it's filmed makes colors that you're already familiar with seem new. So they did a good job of trying their best that they could to create a new color for the film. I, I was reading, I was fascinated by this. The color that they used, like the purplish looking color, that was magenta. Magenta. And the, yeah, the reason why he used magenta is because magenta is, I think it's the only color that we actually have to create in our brains because it doesn't actually exist. It's, it's a color that triggers the part in our brains that, that registers red and blue. Uh, red and blue. Mm -hmm it doesn't recognize it as those colors. So it creates it in our brains and makes it look like that to us only. And since it's magenta, it's magenta color corrected in a very unusual way where it's brightened up. So that makes it even more of an unnatural color. That's actually pretty fascinating to learn. So they did take a lot of time into trying to make sure that the colors are 
are as imaginative as possible. And if yeah, we're drawing on the colors a lot for right now, it's only because color is such an important aspect to this movie. It would not be the same without the beautiful, the beautiful visuals and all the color correction. Totally out of this world. It reminded me a little bit of Mandy and not just because of yeah. the presence of Nicolas Cage, just because it has that vaguely psychedelic feel the vaguely cosmic otherworldly quality that it possesses. Yeah. It, it opens with Nicolas Cage doing very poetic narration to really get you settled into this story. And then much of the first act, it kind of floats around with the whimsical score and it's very touching moments with the family and you really get to know them intimately. And, and Nicolas Cage is extra romantic with his wife. That's what, that's what reminded me of, of uh, Mandy too because they set up just how much he loved his wife before all this fucked up shit starts happening. And it really helps the narrative along and really helps it, the intensity and the effectiveness of it, I thought. I think Nicolas Cage is a big standout. I really, um, I really think this is his comeback because he did such a good job in Mandy. And we were all getting a little bit burnt out on Nicolas Cage. He started yeah. the cliche. But I find with the type, his type of acting style, which is over the top, fits in with heightened surrealistic environments. That's why he's so good in Mandy. That's one of the reasons he's so good in this. So reasons he's good in uh, Wild at Heart, which of course, David Lynch, probably my favorite role of him as uh, yeah. a sailor. That's still, my prop that's still my favorite Nicolas Cage role. But he seems to have discovered something else too, because yeah, he's an over the top actor. Yeah, he kind of chews on the scenery. But he has to, especially in environments where everything is so heightened and so not based in reality. But he's found a way to navigate a certain kind of emotional realness where even if everything he does seems over the top, the emotions behind it seem genuine. I feel like this is something new for him. He's starting to tap into something a little bit different where he still maintains his acting style but you still get the sense of a real person behind all the over-the-top theatrics. Yeah, and, and I thought he went even a little bit more over the top on this one than he did in Mandy. I well, thought some of the dialogue is one of the reasons why some of the lines that come out of his mouth are totally <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> and because he's in this one, he's meant to start acting much more erratic. Mm. And the things the this thing starts fucking with his brain and it starts fucking with everybody's brain. It starts, you know, this, this meteor lands, it puts out this weird, strange color, and all of a sudden some guy starts talking to, the, to Nicolas Cage's son from the well, and you just hear this whispering coming from the well and the boy responding to it, and everything just gets progressively stranger. The score gets more pulsating and dominating as it goes along, where it started as whimsical and floating along, then it starts pounding the, the narrative into you. The colors and the visuals, which already start off a little bit strange a little bit off by the time it ends it's gone so far over the top that you feel like the movie transforming before your eyes and yeah. one of the things that i liked about it is everybody's acting strange in the film and the movie pulls the viewer along with you because there's something a little magnetizing about this movie and it's a little bit hypnotic in the way that it's directed so you start to feel what the characters start to feel that 
man, if these strange happenings were going on around me, I'd probably start being hit, start getting hypnotized by the color and start succumbing yeah. to all of the strangeness around me. And by the end, the visuals mm. are just so batshit, so over the top. The colors have completely taken over everything where before the strange color correction was just peeking in and out by the end you are seeing a cornucopia of visuals that i can't even put into words or describe you just have to see it yeah and another part i love about how when the meteor lands it becomes a different movie and it starts progressively getting stranger and stranger and then it's it's kind of a unspoken strangeness where you're not quite sure what's going on the characters aren't sure what's going on and then they introduce the squatter that's living on their land, played by Tommy Chong. His name's Ezra. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a, another movie where the strangeness starts being put into words. And it's very effective in that way, too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. some, some of that dialogue, I could not believe how well Tommy Chong did a serious role. And there was still some, there was still some wit in his performance. But it was very serious, very grounded, and, and made me feel very, uh, it made me feel closer to the strangeness. Like it brought me in closer to it, made me feel it more, I think. I agree. Another thing that, um, another reason to check this out for yeah. horror fans, I wouldn't call this a body horror movie. This is definitely cosmic surreal horror. But there's one element of body horror that's probably the best piece of body horror since oh. David Cronenberg, since anything David Cronenberg does. I don't want to ruin it for the audience, but it involves two characters, the mother and the son. And it's deeply uncomfortable. It's disturbing. It's kind of uncanny. And I don't think I've ever seen, I don't think I've ever seen that done on screen in the way they, the, the way they did it. To me, it's worthy of David Cronenberg at his finest. When you think of the brood and uh, the mom and the uh, the fly and the transformation. Yeah. This is the best bit of that business since Cronenberg, in my opinion. And, anyway. and on top of that, they add the, the extra thing with the uh, uh, alpacas. And then the same type That's of thing happens. The same type of thing happens to the alpacas. And holy shit. Because it starts out and they add a layer of cuteness to the movie and like, that's kind of strange is this movie this uh, family raises alpacas and they even explain the reasons why and everything and then it becomes part of the narrative and part of the strangeness at the end is so fucked up yeah but that's what makes it messed up is it there's an element of cuteness but that cuteness is turned inside out so you yeah. become even more repulsed by what's going on at the end there's literally uh, <laughs> Did you see a little bit of uh, John Carpenter's The Thing in here? I saw some yeah. there's some imagery that seems like it was influenced by The Thing. So I could see that being a jumping off point for this movie. Yeah, I've seen shades of Rob Bottin in the, the practical makeup. Oh, they yeah. Had to have been, they had to have been inspired by him. Excellent practical makeup, too. And the practical makeup, the realistic gore effects, and the strange, gross, uncanny body horror put in the visual scheme of surrealism and really over the top colors gives you a unique experience. And for me right now, it's probably the best horror movie of 2020 so far. I really did enjoy The Hunt, but I thought this was even more imaginative, more original, yeah. more uh, unique as a, a film experience. Yeah, my... my when I watched uh, Invisible Man, that was my favorite of the year so far. And then when I watched The Hunt, I liked that a little bit better than uh, 
Invisible Man. And then when I watch Color Out of Space, I like that even more than The Hunt. So it just keeps getting better and better. I like The Invisible Man a little more than The Hunt, personally. But yeah. all three of them are, are definitely worth reviewing. But, but Color Out of Space is probably the best pure horror movie to come out this year so far. Did you, did you notice something else that was kind of funny about Color Out of Space? The two male characters, Nicolas Cage and his son, their reaction to the purple glow was like to stand and stare at it and freak out on it. And then the girls, the mom and the, the daughter, their reaction to it was to face it head on and try to do rituals to stop it. Did you notice that? Yeah. <laughs> and the guys are running around, oh my God, oh my God. And the girls are like, no, we have to figure out what we're going to do to get to stop this. <laughs> it turns the males into bumbling idiots. Yeah. <laughs> Magnetized. Which is, isn't that far off from reality. <laughs> Shut up. But this, it seemed like this uh, alien presence was also affecting them that way. It, it seemed to target the boy in particular, and it seemed to make Nicolas Cage act erratic, where the, the, the girls weren't acting as, as erratic as he was. I think this, this film proves that if you want effective weirdness, you need to build an intimate relationship with the characters. And that's exactly what Richard Stanley did with this movie. This is another thing that they, that, um, that Panos, Co I don't know how to say his name, right? Panos Cosmatos or Panos? Cosmatos, yeah. Cosmatos did the same thing with Mandy. Had a very heightened out there environment, but it was grounded in emotions that felt real and recognizably mm. human. So Color Out of Space, best horror movie of the year so far. And I'm extremely proud of Richard Stanley. I'm really going to go back and see uh, Hardware. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't believe I haven't seen that yet, but it's supposed to be really good. Um, and he did another one that, that people were calling a Terminator knockoff, but apparently it has a cult following too. So I want to go back and watch his old stuff because this guy really deserves a chance because look what happened to this guy, how he's been plagued mm -hmm. with nothing but problems and, and uh, butting heads with studio heads and stuff about creative differences. And it seems like because he has a very singular vision, he has a vision of what he wants to do with these things. And like the reason why he was fired from Island to Dr. Moreau, he came in, he had an entire vision for it. And all of a sudden he starts working it. He's not even like a month into it and they fire him because they don't like what he's doing. And then it ends up, I think they took one or two words from his script mm -hmm. and just completely turned it into something else. And for something for that, to be for that to happen to him that must be devastating for a filmmaker and to come back 20 years later with a film like color out of space bravo yes bravo and uh he, he's he's saying that this is uh the first part in a lovecraft trilogy he's going to do and he said the next part is going to be done with horror so we'll see i mean any anybody in their right mind should throw money at that after seeing that movie listen to this podcast or i'll skin your cat and f it Color Out of Space, as gross and as bizarre as it is on time, was kind of a delight for me. It, 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 yeah. it had the exact things that I kind of look for in a movie, specifically horror. And if that was a delight, the next film that we are going to discuss was one of the most unpleasant experiences I've had watching a movie recently. And it's kind of a compliment. Yeah, The Golden Glove, another one from this year. It's a German film mm -hmm. written and directed by Fatih Akin, based on a novel by Hans Strunk. It's a true story starring Jonas Dazzler, 
as serial killer Fritz Hunka and follows his killing spree from 1970 to 1975. And the Golden Glove is the bar where he picked up most of his victims. Gory, it's unrelenting. Uh, it's, it's got about a 50-50 rating among critics. Some critics love it for its realness and for how well crafted it is. Some, uh, a lot of them are disgusted with it. I think it has no artistic merit. It's just brutality and just vile nastiness. It is, it is vile nastiness. From beginning to end, dude. And we, we meet the killer in the first scene. In the very first scene, he's stuffing a body into a trash bag and dragging it out of his apartment so he can chop it up and hide it in different places. And then you see, you see uh, news coming across. It's like a, like a print press going across and you see the news coming up that he's about this killing spree, but nobody knows who it is yet. So that's just the first couple minutes in the movie and the rest of it is just him killing his victims. And did you realize... This guy only had four victims? Did, didn't he kill more than four people in the movie? It seemed like dozens. <laughs> it seemed like a lot. But yeah. My thing with this movie is I can understand the split reaction. I respect this movie, and I recognize the artistic value behind it, and there is artistic value behind it more than I actually enjoy it. I definitely yeah. couldn't take my eyes off of it for a while, but it's a movie that I found really repulsive. It's disgusting. It wallows in filth and grime and yes. and sleaziness. And there are a couple, I mean, I say that, I, I mean, I kept my eyes on it, but there are a couple, there's more than a handful of scenes in this movie that are hard to watch. And it's not just the, the killing scenes. It's not just the murder. It's the character himself, the main character. Um, what's the actor's name? Uh, Jonas Dassler. Jonas Dassler. Did you see this guy? Yeah, he's not even that bad looking. I thought he was. The movie, the movie, <laughs> he's a friggin' he, he's a friggin' Adonis, and in the movie, he's a vile monster. Dude. And in the movie, he's they did a really good job with the makeup. He's hideous to look at. But it's not just the makeup, it's the performance that makes this movie hard to watch. This is a disgusting person, really vile. Even if they weren't a serial killer, you would still be grossed out and disgusted by him. His yeah. apartment is terrible. You could practically smell the filth. I, that's, that's the impression I got, uh, is that we spend so much time in a shitty little apartment that you get to almost feel like you could smell the dead bodies rotting in there the sense of decay, the sense of filth, the maggots in this apartment complex. Yeah. And the way that he carries himself, he carries himself almost like a piece of trash. The way that he flips yeah. over and his body language, the way that he speaks gives you the creeps. If you ever saw this person in real life, you would go in the exact opposite direction. Yeah. And it makes the movie even harder to stomach is that the victims that he picks are also filthy, disgusting people. But then again, they would have to be filthy and disgusting to be taken in by him, to even want to go near him and to want to enter into his house. So that makes sense that his victims are almost as disgusting and vile as he is. But you but still feel sorry for them, though. Yeah, they're, they're not just disgusting, they're just tragically sad, where you feel so sad for them. And like he cuts up the bodies and hides them in his wall. And you can see the women react to it the moment they walk in they grab their nose and it why did they stay there with him and how did he go to this same bar 
and pick up this many women and take home and mutilate them and abuse them in front of people and never get caught. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it was disgusting. Yeah, it's it's <clears throat> disgusting. It's hard to look at. The murders are not the type of these are not the type of kill scenes or gore scenes that are that's designed for gore hounds or for people like mm. if you think of like the Tom Savini's or the Greg Nicotero's when you think of the creative gore that horror fans take a delight in. It's hard to take any pleasure in any of the killings in this movie because it's so bleak and right. it's done in such a s- extremely realistic fashion that audio glitch. Sorry, we got cut off again, but I was just saying it's the type of violence and gore that's really unpleasant. It's not the type that's going to get gore hounds excited or it's going to, you're going to look at the effects and go, ooh, wow, cool. This is kind of the type of violence that is just going to be a turnoff for most people. Even more than the hunt, you could feel every hit and it mm-hmm. looked like it landed. And the sound effects were extra loud and wet, so every time he hit someone, ugh, it was just disgusting. Mm-hmm. If you're watching this podcast and not listening to it, uh, Mike has something to show you. This won't work as well if you're listening to it, but uh, show the audience what uh, what the character looks like. Okay. While I have my phone off the deck, I'm going to turn it around now and show you my screen. This is the guy in the movie. Mm-hmm. This is the actor. Hideous. And here he is in real life. Look at that. <laughs> what a transformation, dude. <laughs> so a lot of it was makeup. That's fucking fantastic makeup because you can't even tell that that's the same person. Yeah, and, and it wasn't just the look of it either. It's just the, his performance and he was just so disgusting. It just leaves you with that feeling of you want to wash yourself and you want to de-louse his apartment, dude. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that kind of disturbed me with all this nastiness and brutality going on in these sad older women, then they shift the narrative to this little schoolgirl, this this pretty little schoolgirl, and he fixates on her. And then through the rest of the movie, you keep seeing images of her while he's doing these disgusting things to these poor old women. And it's mostly toothless women. Mm-hmm. And that toothlessness plays into the sexuality, if you know what I mean. Ugh. Yeah. It's gross. But he's doing these disgusting things, and then it keeps showing this little girl that he, that he keeps thinking of, and it it just layer it, it adds a layer of disgust. You don't know why they're going to this girl. You don't know where it's, but then it comes full circle at the end, and you see why that little girl was introduced. And it was kind of a cheap trick from the director, if you ask me, but it was still effective. Like he, yeah. he messed around with your expectations and made you think you were going to see something with this girl and I was like, please, no, mm-hmm. please, no, don't touch this poor little girl. No, don't do it. I'll turn yeah. this fucking thing off. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of good that they don't go that route. And then that one lady moves in with him. I guess it was his wife for a while or something. And yeah, he made her sign. There's a character that her... moves in with him and yeah. he's kind of gross herself though. Yeah. And he, she mentioned she has a daughter. He makes her sign an agreement that he gets to have pieces of her daughter to do what he, what he wants. Like, what the, what the hell kind of person doesn't run straight out the door, dude? I think uh, another interesting thing about the movie is I think he's living in poverty, too. And it's not a very nice area of Germany where he lives. And the bar yeah. that he goes to is kind of gross. And it, it, 
it's kind of like a cheap little dive bar. The feeling I get off of this is that it's an area that is defined by poverty, filth, and desperation. Yeah. So I think those factors, the the desperation and the poverty, uh, contributes to the griminess and the filth and makes people more susceptible to somebody like this because they don't really have very much to turn to. This is what the norm is in their world. And I think that yeah. is also another aspect of this movie that makes it a little unpleasant too, is it really sinks you into the seediness of that world. They introduce, like, like let's say they introduce his brother. Mm-hmm. Brother's infinitely more interesting character. You see the writing come in and that he's an interesting character because there's nothing interesting about the main character. He's, he's disgusting, he's vile. There's no redeeming qualities about him. So I'm not so sure why he, why the why the director concentrated on so much on making such good supporting characters because the brother was a good character. Uh, they they show him try to quit alcohol, why, and they show it after he quits alcohol he gets a new job and befriends a couple mm-hmm. at his at his new job why. I think it's just to show the main character's inability to live a normal life and adapt because the brother is kind of grimy in his own way but he's also a little bit witty so he has the shitty yeah. of his brother but it's easier to understand why somebody might be taken aback like the brother than yeah. the main character and i guess but, it's just to show how maladjusted he is maybe yeah and he's he's a uh, uh pleasant in comparison you know the, the brother is <laughs> pleasant in comparison to him and then in the bar they show some interesting characters too so there's some little interesting characters throughout but I, I can't really get why because it's it's just every every other scene besides that didn't have those colorful characters in it mm-hmm. was just constant depravity and constant violence and with, with with no purpose and no artistic merit it's just brutality for the sake of brutality and and it it reminded me of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer but this was even it was more well crafted this one was a little more polished and that made it somehow nastier for me mm-hmm. it, it reminds <clears throat> me of henry portrait of a little uh, a little henry portrait of a serial killer but i think that movie was disgusting and vile but a little bit more disturbing actually for me it's quite a bit more disturbing than the golden glove which is not to say <laughs> that this movie isn't disturbing it is um they both have the the vile aspects to them but this one grossed me out more and repulsed me more than outright disturbed me, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. They both have both elements. Mm-hmm. I feel like Henry of Portrait uh, puts a little bit more emphasis on how disturbing it is and less on the filth and grime and repulsiveness, which is there. This yeah. one does that too, but it puts more emphasis on the filth, the, the repulsiveness and the grime. Ugh. Mm-hmm. And like, like I said, you can almost smell that stench. Mm-hmm. coming from the apartment but like i said it, it was effective bringing the the school goal story full circle but I, I just thought it was a cheap trick overall yeah. and, and and otherwise really well-made movie I, I i wish he could have found found some other i don't know some other artistic creative way to display it but you really can't with a person like that right no i don't you, think you so. really you really can't show any humanity because it, it's like there was none there I don't think there is. I think that's part of the point. I don't know if I'd call this a recommendation. I would recommend it 
if you know what you're getting into and if this type of horror film is your thing. If this is not your thing, then it's probably not going to be for you. In fact, this movie is not for most people, I would say. it's Most people are not going to enjoy this, even horror fans. Yeah, because it's, it's really gory and violent, but not the fun type of gory and violent. <laughs> yeah, and like we said, it is well made and it does have uh, artistic value. I would recommend it if for nothing else, but for the performance of that lead actor and the transformation yeah. he did and how realistic it is. Yeah. I'd recommend it, but just know what it is when you're getting into it. Yeah, you are going to be disgusted. It wasn't a fun experience, but I, I can't say it's not a well-made film. It definitely is. And it did keep our attention. Yeah, so, so I, I would like to see what else this director does, because he's, he's really good with realism. You're listening to Ghost Man and Rivera's Horror Show Podcast. Another film that I caught up on, uh, which is one of your favorites from last year, and it's much more pleasant than uh, The Golden Glove, was Satanic Panic. Oh, yes. Satanic Panic was, I had a blast watching this movie. It's not perfect. I think the movie does have its uh, few flaws in it, and especially with the script, I, I feel like some of the structure towards the end gets to the point where it's starting to wrap itself up in a way that feels pretty uh, cliche and predictable. But just when you feel like it's going that route, it spins and goes in a completely another direction. So the ending kind of redeems the fact that the last act was kind of starting to get wobbly. It had its redemption moments with a good touch of surrealism in it. And uh, I could, it reminded me a lot of uh, Ready or Not, Although, uh, ready or not, they both are about rich people, somebody stuck in a rich person's house being chased, uh, chased around by devil uh, worshippers, wealthy people. Both seem to suggest that wealth is <laughs> wealth comes from making deals with Satan. Seems to be a big yeah. thing. And it's so weird because I know that they didn't plan it. It wasn't intentional that these movies would come out around the same time. It just so happens. I really think that's purely coincidental. And yeah. they both approach it in a different way. I feel like this one is, is interesting because it puts more, I mean, it's in the title. So it puts more aspect on the satanic elements of it in the rituals where in ready or not, that's a part of it, but that kind of takes a background to what, uh, uh, to the, to the gore and to the action and to the suspense that's going on. Where in satanic panic, those elements are put more up front. Yeah, and they don't they don't just portray rituals. It's like they perform the ritual in front of your eyes. Like they literally go through the whole thing, all the incantations and everything. Yeah. There's a couple of moments where the humor didn't fully work for me, but for the most part it was pretty funny. It was uh, pretty humorous. It had good gore effects, good makeup. I like the the idea of the rules, how um every demon in hell is a stickler for rules. So nobody what uh nobody can get anything done in this movie, the evil people can't, because they have yeah. so many damn rules that they have to follow that they slow yeah. themselves down. So I found that uh aspect interesting. And I like that at the end mm-hmm. they kind of popped in some level of surrealism into there that I did not expect, especially with the last demon in the movie, which I'm not gonna reveal what it is. But I like the portrayal of the last demon in the film. Yeah. Uh, caught me off guard and it was uh quite a bit different than what you mo- than most portrayals of demons in films. And the the script from Grady Hendrix was really clever. Mm-hmm. I think it was I think this was a bit more campier mm-hmm. than Ready or Not was, but I think it's more clever 
than Ready or Not. Mm -hmm. the, the snappy dialogue. And I think that's the reason it's kind of started going off the rails a little bit in the third act before it came to, up to that great climax. Mm -hmm. I think it's because it was, it was uh, they were throwing a lot at you, you know, a lot of snappy jokes, a lot of interesting lines, and it just constantly through the whole movie it was going. So I, I knew it was liable to go off, you know, off the rails a little bit here and there, but it totally came together in the end. It was great direction by Chelsea Stardust, too. Mm -hmm. Jerry O'Connell didn't have as much of a part as I thought he was going to be, but it was, uh, it was memorable. Little weird direction he went in towards the end of it, but uh, <laughs> it was funny. Rebecca Romaine did a good job. Most of the cast, the supporting cast, do a good job of these, these Satanists. They make themselves, I don't know, I don't know how to put it. They're scary and they're kind of intimidating, but they're clowns. That's the best yeah. way to describe it. They're almost clownish in how they carry about their business that, how do these, how are these people so inept? These people keep fucking <laughs> up every little chance that they get. Every little thing that they do is a bad mistake. It feels like nobody, everybody is so power hungry in this cult that most of the time they're thinking about how they're going to advance and they're, how they're going to come to get to the top that they miss basic things that could save them in the future. For example, yeah. backstabbing could have been, yeah. uh, could have mm -hmm. been handled a lot better if you were really going to backstab somebody the way they handle uh, the cult leader's daughter was foolish. Yeah. I was like, you know, all of these things, if you aren't were so vain and self-obsessed, you'd be much better Satanist than you are. Yeah, and the, the daughter was clearly more intelligent than they were. Yeah. <laughs> and I, think I love that I love that scene with, with the daughter and the and the main character on the couch and the the mom is trying to get through to her. And uh no no, it wasn't the mom, it was the, the mom's second in command. Like they were trying different things to stop them if, if they would have just worked together and stopped bickering amongst each other they probably could have got these girls yeah I, I thought that was a really touching moment amongst all this crazy campiness i thought that was a really touching moment on that sofa when the main character realized that she used to be we used to have cancer and stuff mm -hmm. i thought that was really touching touching and effective so overall uh satanic panic is actually available on shutter and if you didn't hear our last message podcast, just let you know, um, if you put in the code shut in right now, you'll get a month free of shutter. And even after that, it's only like five bucks a month. So it's cheap. It's good entertainment yeah. right now. And I feel like uh, Golden Glove is also on shutter, isn't it? Yeah. So a couple of the movies that we talked about are on shutter. The other two, the hunt and color out of space. You're going to have to rent if you want to watch them. The hunt, at a heftier price and color out of space you can get at uh just five or six bucks i think listen to this podcast or i'll gut you i'm a i'm gonna talk about i've, I've done this a couple times on the podcast i like to rewatch something uh certain things that i didn't quite connect with the first time and get a, a fresh perspective on it mm -hmm. i've done that a couple times and i did it with this time with mayhem directed by Joe Lynch from 2017 is starring uh, Stephen Yun from uh, uh, Walking Dead and Samara Weaving from The Babysitter and Ready or Not, we were just talking about Ash vs. Evil Dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also a good performance from Stephen Brand, who plays the evil CEO. But it's uh, directed by Joe Lynch, who directed Wrong Turn 2, Knights of Badassdom, Everly, and Point Blank, which 
I thought Point Blank was his best film so far, but now that I've rewatched Mayhem, I think this is his best film. Mm-hmm. It's written by uh, Matthias Caruso, and it's, it was his first feature film. Uh, great cinematography from Steve Gaynor, who also did A Dirty Shame as a John Waters film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mysterious, Mysterious Skin with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was really good, and Super with uh, Ellen Page and Rain Wilson. So uh, it's, it's really good cinematography from him, Steve Gaynor. And it's about a virus that starts spreading inside an office building that causes people to act on their darkest impulses. So there's a reason uh, you chose to watch this again. Yeah, well, I actually just wanted to watch something fun. It was was one of those where it was late at night and I wanted to put on something that I'd I'd seen before. So in case I I fell asleep, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be a big deal. So I wanted to give this another chance and I was engrossed from the first frame. I don't know what it was the first time when I watched it, it just didn't connect. Where this time it did, uh, Joe Lynch's uh, style really comes through on this one more than I realized the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I watched it around, it came out around the same time as Belko Experiment, which was a detriment to this film, I think. Belko Experiment is more straightforward. It, it takes this concept and tells a straightforward story of it, where with these, these guys in, in this office building are just kicking the shit out of each other. Mm-hmm. So it, it felt much more the the grindhouse aesthetic that was this one was also going for but mm-hmm. there's also a, a clever script and good performances that come with this and and the the style so so it's a it's a little more it's a bit more of a subtle approach to the to the concept than Belko experiment was but mm-hmm. just the style of the directing and these performances makes it so much better and it's uh it's an excellent pacing with just enough time to get to know the characters before the insanity starts. Mm-hmm. it's just campy enough to keep it fun just clever enough and well crafted enough to keep it grounded mm-hmm. so it was it's the same way throughout the whole thing just when you think it's going toward the silly campy end it grounds itself and and it's usually the good performances and the good script and a combination of good performances good script and joe lynch's directing really keeps it grounded and and makes it uh, really entertaining um it's the most stylistic flair I've seen from Joe Lynch. And I really want to see more of that from him because it's, I, I think it's his bread and butter. Uh, there's some grindhouse elements to the story where it's, it's about the underdog who just got fired and a badass green queen battled their way through murderous coworkers to reach the evil CEO on the top floor. Mm-hmm. So it's very uh, campy and grindhouse aesthetic there, but the dialogue and the performances is, is what keeps it stimulating and, and, and takes it to another level besides being just a violent movie. Another thing with this, this is another one where the violence is really well filmed, just like in The Golden Glove. It's pretty violent, and Joe Lynch is excellent with it. Just like in The Golden Gloves, he shows the impact. The, the sound design is a little bit louder than usual, but not over the top. So it makes it that much more effective, and you feel like you feel the hits. And a, a decent amount of uh, well-done gore, not a whole lot of it, but a decent amount, and a good amount of comedy and likable characters. Samara Weaving shines as usual. Uh, so does Steven Yun. And uh, they have great chemistry. So each of them individual have their own kind of star quality. And then them together, they have to do another movie together. Their chemistry is off the charts on this one. Mm-hmm. So I had such a blast with this one that I watched it twice. Cool. So another complete turnaround for me, much like with the Serbian film, where I watched it for the second time. It was a completely different experience than the first time. If you guys watch a movie that that you don't think is bad, 
but it didn't quite connect with you, give it another chance, especially with horror and especially with directors like Joe Lynch. They'll, they'll give you something to, to latch on to every time you watch it. Right. So highly recommended Mayhem. That's also on Shudder. Listen to this podcast or I'll stab your eardrums with an ice pick. Before we go, I'm going to discuss a movie that I didn't need to catch up on Mayhem. I'm going to discuss a movie that I saw recently for the first time, also on Shutter. This has been on my radar for a while. It's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This uh. is an Iranian vampire movie that I've been hearing about for a good while now. It's directed by another female director. Her name is Annie, Anna Lily Amarpour. And it's starring uh, Sheila Van. It's shot in black and white. It's very artistic. And it has elements of a Western to it and uh, elements of a love story. It revolves around uh, an Iranian vampire in this kind of uh, small, like, kind of like not really a ghost town, but it's a very quiet, uh, quiet town where she just, uh, where she looks for her victims by seducing them. She comes across as very innocent almost like uh like the title suggests she the way that she lures her victims in is when she walks around at night in iran she looks like an unaccompanied young woman who is vulnerable or easy to attack there's a lot of crime and a lot of poverty in this area so naturally a lot of criminals or sleazy people will see her walking and try to take advantage of that. And that's how she lures her victims and she uses her surroundings to her advantage. She ends up falling for somebody who she originally was going to uh, kill, but she ends up falling for them. And it's very nice. It's very romantic. And you get to see the human side to her that you could see that somewhere deep inside of her there used to be a human being who longed for love and who wanted to be a normal person but has just been cursed with this affliction overall really enjoyable movie uh very artistic it's an interesting hybrid i like the fact that uh, she's also a skater in the movie too although i have to be quite honest i was a little bit disappointed just because of all the hype that i heard about this film about how incredible it is I definitely did enjoy it. I do see its value. It kept me engaged uh, in through the whole time. There's nothing particularly wrong with it. But by the end, I felt like I just wanted more. Like I needed to see more from the story, a little bit more from this movie. As it is, it's stylish, it's well-directed, and it's engaging. But not quite the masterpiece that I was hoping for. Uh, so tell me, tell me if I'm right. From the trailer... It looks to me like a cross between maybe Let the Right One In and The Eyes of My Mother type of aesthetic. I like both of those films more as horror films. They're both more satisfying and they both leave you, uh, they both leave you feeling like you'd saw, uh, seen a full experience. I enjoyed it and I thought it was good, but those movies left me uh, a lot more sated by the time they were through. This one okay. left me feel like I wanted more. But it's definitely worth a watch. It is a solid film. Uh, I can't deny how beautifully it's shot. The cinematography is magnificent. It approaches those films in terms of its aesthetic, in terms of its quality, in terms of its direction. I just felt like the script put have, could have put a little bit more in there as far as the character. They could have added more. We could have learned a little bit more about the vampire. We could have learned, uh, they could have followed up on the story that it was building up a little bit more. And some of the scenes, while they were good, they could have been a little bit scarier. It just felt like every element that I enjoyed, I wanted to see more of it. I wanted to see more of the romance, more of the killings, more of the backstory, more of the setting. It just wasn't enough. But 
it is a good film and definitely worth a watch. That's just my perspective. And some people really love this movie. I mean, I've seen reactions from it where people love it. They think it's great. I could totally see why it's get, why it gets the kind of praise that it does. But I personally could have used a little bit more, mostly from the script. It's not from the performances or the direction or the cinematography. It's mostly the script that I felt like there could have been stuff shaded in a little bit more. Also on Shutter. So get your free Shutter subscriptions, people. That's all the movies I have to talk about right now. Cool, and we'll be back uh, next week for more. Yes. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I, I believe we're going to post these videos somewhere so you can see our mugs during the podcast. So uh, watch out for those on our page on facebook.com slash Pickles Horror Show or on Instagram at Pickles Horror Show. And uh, stay tuned for updates on my feature film that uh, James and I made, Pay Up. We've entered it in five major festivals so far, and we're going to enter it in a bunch of small ones after this, but uh, we've picked our five big ones. Mm -hmm. So fingers crossed. And come back next week, and we're going to discuss more movies. And I have another guest next week, Ryan Joseph Murphy. He's he's another actor and producer. He's going to be on next week. Until next week, folks, happy horror. Happy horror, everyone. (laughs) 